So this, uh, this week in the news, NASA landed the rover Perseverance on Mars. That's crazy. I mean, who would have ever thought that? Our knowledge of the, the heavens of the universe is growing at an exponential rate. And like so many things, what we are learning is that the more we, we discover, the more we realize how much we don't know. So I want you to join me. If we could transport several thousand years back and standing next to King David... King David is out on a, a, a night, and it's a clear night, and he's looking up into the heavens, and he sees all of these thousands of brilliant lights twinkling down on him. And he's in a spirit of, of worship, and he's comprehending how great God is as he looks at the heavens. And he composes this psalm, which is uh, an absolutely soaring psalm, Psalm 8. So stand next to David, look up into the night sky if you can imagine it, as you hear these words that he wrote. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him ruler over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So David is looking up into this brilliant night sky, and the thing that he can't quite reconcile is how is it that this God that is beyond his wildest imagination, and he had no idea. I mean, now we have such a greater idea, and we still have no idea that, that the God that is so great that he, he cast all of these stars into orbit, that somehow this, this great God could enter into a relationship and know someone as small as himself. How is it that the that, that mere mortals, such as ourselves, can actually reach out and touch the immortal? How is it that we who are from dust and we are to dust can lay hold of the eternal one? How can we presume to draw near to the one who goes by the name I am? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That word majestic is such a good word to describe what it is that, that we're talking about. Majestic, magnificent, transcendent, enormous. Because we can't comprehend uh, the, the majesty of God, it leaves us in this place where we have to turn to metaphor. 
and we have to turn to comparisons. And those metaphors and those comparisons are always reductions. God is always much greater than anything that we might compare him to, but, but that's what we have to do. And so, so David turns to the night sky as his metaphor, as his comparison. When I consider the heavens which you have just cast out there, my mind is blown. Oh, Lord, or oh Lord, how majestic is your name? How great are you? When I look at the magnificence of your creation and I, and I recognize that as magnificent and lofty as it is, it is only a tiny reflection of your majesty. Who am I? Who are we to presume today that God really cares about what's going on at 701 14th Avenue, Fulton, Illinois? Who are we to really think at the end of the service when I raise my hands and says, the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and turn his face to you? Who are we to think that he's actually turning his face towards us? And yet, David writes, you've made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. You are God. I am dust. And yet you love me, and you care for me, and you know me, and you desire to be known by me. And so the wonder of that all leads David back to the the same words with which he began his psalm, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we have entered the season of Lent leading up to Easter. And during this season, we're going to be leaning into this incredible truth that through Christ, through Jesus, God has made himself known to us and continues to make himself known to us. Through Jesus, we have been invited to draw near to this incredible, majestic God that we worship. So join me as we pray for this series. Lord, uh, this morning we join the psalmist in declaring, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, that you would care for any of us, let alone love us, let alone die for us is truly beyond our understanding. So Lord, we lift up this season of Lent that it would be a time for all of us to draw closer to you. Lord, you know the things that hold each of us back. And about those things, we pray for breakthrough. Lord, you know those areas in our life where we are neither hot nor cold, but just lukewarm. We pray that you would send your spirit upon us and fan the embers of our desire for you into a flame. Lord, help us draw near to you, for it is in living near to you that we are most who you created us to be. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. So our central verse for this series is going to be James 4, verse 8. It's a very simple, short verse. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That word, and is a wonderful word. Uh, grammatically speaking, it's a conjunction, and what a conjunction does is it connects words and phrases. 
And so what, he, what God is telling us is that there is this connection between us drawing near to God and God drawing near to, to us. That God will draw near to us as we draw near to him is not a, a gamble. It's not a matter of probability. Will he, won't he? He has promised that I will draw near to you as you draw near to me. I remember the first time uh, back at Ohio University as a, a junior, and I met this wonderful redheaded girl named Karen, and, and I really liked her, and, and I asked her out, I guess would be our first date to the dining hall. I was a, a romancer. And uh, we went to the dining hall, and I had written down on a piece of paper all the things that I liked about her and why we should be boyfriend and girlfriend. I was so nervous that I, I went to the dining hall with my piece of paper, and we sat down with our trays and our food, and I buried my head in the piece of paper and began to read. And, and, and I thought that she liked me, but I wasn't sure. And so my heart is beating out of my chest, and it, it felt so, so risky because what I was doing by putting myself out there was risking rejection. Like anytime we put ourselves out there with someone, whether that's a romantic relationship or a, a friendship, when you risk something, when you put yourself out there, what you risk is rejection. And there are few things that sting more than rejection. In fact, the longer I've been in ministry, I'm coming to the conclusion that many of us, if not all of us, have created some strategic ways of living to minimize the chance of rejection. We've learned how to hold people safely at a distance, to only let them in so far to minimize the chance of, of being hurt. And so as we come to God, the one thing that we never need to fear is rejection. His love for you is a sure thing. So in our relationship with God, it is actually he who has invited us out to the, the dining hall. It, God is the one who has showed up with a piece of paper, with all of the reasons that he loves us and why he thinks he should be our God and we should be our people. He is the one who has made the first move in sending his son to die for us. He is the first one in our relationship to say, I love you. And, and we may reject Christ. We can, can turn our back on Christ, but if we respond to his invitation to draw near, I can assure you God will never reject you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So I was thinking in this book of James, who was he writing this to? Who's the audience? Well, if you work your way through the book of James, what becomes very clear multiple times is that he's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. In James chapter 2, verse 1, it's, it's most apparent. He identifies his audience as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James is writing to people like many of us. So what does that mean? What does it mean that he's writing these words, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, not to unbelievers, but to believers? These are people who believed in God. These are people who had confessed their need for a Savior. These are people who had asked God to forgive them of their sins. They once were lost, but now they're found. They were blind, but now they see. 
And to them, James writes, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So I think there's a couple implications that this was written to believers. And, and so here's the first. One thing that I think that means is that our journey, a person's journey with God, doesn't end when they become a believer, when they become a Christian. Now, I know that doesn't sound profound, obviously, but how many people are actually living as if that's the truth? You know, that, that I've become a believer and now I'm kind of, I'm in, I'm, I'm set. Jesus uses the words to describe this conversion. He uses the words in John chapter 3, born again. Born again. He's talking about birth. And what we know about birth is that what comes after birth, Lord willing, is, is growth. If everything uh, goes in, in a healthy manner, what follows birth is growth. Our conversion, when we are born again, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ and we're baptized into the community of faith, it is a milestone in our journey. It is a, a significant moment in our journey, but it's not the end of the journey. Dare I say, Jesus is not looking for converts. Jesus isn't looking for converts. Jesus is looking for disciples. And his command to us was not go out and make converts. His command was to go out and make disciples. So uh, an analogy, sometimes when I'm standing up here with a couple who's getting married, uh, I will say to them, this today is not as good as it gets. Now, you have done so much preparation for this day leading up to this, this wedding day, and this day is a, a milestone, but the best is yet to come. How sad would it be for a couple who, after celebrating their wedding, after celebrating this, this newfound relationship as husband and wife, Stop pursuing one another. That's sad. How sad would it be to conclude that since, you know, the marriage license has been signed, since we now share a last name, we live under the same roof, our relationship is pretty much kind of as far as it's going to go. It need not grow. Well, if we're not careful, we can treat our salvation the same way. We've trusted in Jesus. We've gotten our membership card. We've been baptized. We're Christians. And now we can pretty much just coast until we get to heaven. Jesus said some pretty alarming words. He said, on that day, there will be those who say to me, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. I never knew you. And what's alarming about those words is that there are people who are sitting in churches and standing behind pulpits to whom those words are spoken. Depart from me because I, I just never knew you. But they're thinking, I said the prayer. I took a dip in the water. I've got my certificate of membership. I'm in. I'm not so sure. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Here's the second implication that that was written to believers. Our relationship with Jesus is dynamic. It's fluid. 
In other words, it's a real relationship, just like a relationship with anyone else. There's movement. At any given time, we might be moving closer to God, closer to Jesus. And at any given time, we might be moving further away from God. Were the people that James was writing to, were they believers? Yes. Were they church members? Yes. And nevertheless, what we're going to see in future weeks from James is that they were drifting. These were people that were backsliding, that were stuck in sin, and they weren't repenting of that sin. They're moving further away from Jesus, even though, quote, they're in. Which leads me to the the third implication. We have a a model, a paradigm, a a metaphor of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church member, and and it's a good paradigm, but what I want to suggest is we need an additional paradigm. So the paradigm that is, is really operative in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, I think, is pictured by a fence. So imagine a farmer. Let's imagine Dale Sternberg, because he has a fence a lot like this. Imagine a farmer with several hundred cows. Is that right? Several hundred, more or less. And how many acres, Dale? Two th- oh, I was going to say like two or three. You have 2,000 acres with fence that are fenced in? Okay, good. <clears throat> Let's not use Dale as the example for this. <laughs> so imagine a farmer who only has a couple acres and a few, few cows. They put up a fence, and that fence serves a purpose. The fence keeps the cows from straying, but what the fence also does is it identifies these cows as belonging to this farmer. They are his cows. They belong to him. And so we are accustomed to thinking about the church through the lens of a fence. The fence serves to identify who's in and who's out. The fence places people in one of two groups. You are either an unbeliever or a believer. You're a a non-Christian or you're a Christian. You're lost or you're found. You're blind or you see. You're either in Adam, as the scripture says, or you are in Christ. You're either going to hell or you're going to heaven. Now, there's a reason that this is a, a dominant paradigm for us. It's because there's plenty of biblical support for it. This language of in Adam and in Christ, it's biblical language. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever has my words and believes them, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He's crossed over from death to life. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. In 1 John, it says it this way. This is the verdict. God's given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And so as much as we may or may not like it, over and over in Scripture, it presents us with this binary picture. There are two options before us. There is life and there is death. You are a Christian or you are not. You are inside the fence or you are outside of the fence. So the paradigm of the fence It serves a purpose, but it doesn't tell the whole story. So I think we would be served by an additional paradigm. 
And for this paradigm, the image that better serves us is a well. So as I understand it, for some farmers who have so much livestock spread over so much land that they can't build a fence, instead, to, to help keep the cows from strain, instead of building a fence, they build a well. And now maybe this is outdated, it's probably different today, but, but back in the day, they build a well. The well is a source of water from which the, the livestock must drink in order to survive. It's the well and this source of water that keep the cattle returning and keep them from straying too far. The well is literally their lifeline. So in, our di- in addition to our paradigm of the fence, I think it would be helpful to add the paradigm of a well. Of course, when we talk about wells, you can't not think of John chapter 4. Jesus one day went out and stood at a well during the heat of the day. And a woman came out to the well during that time because she was ashamed. She didn't want to run into people. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And she was a Samaritan woman with a checkered past. And she couldn't believe that Jesus was actually speaking to her. And and she said, how is it that you're speaking to me? And he replied, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is our well of living water. And so the operative question in the paradigm of the well is no longer am I inside the fence or outside the fence, but rather what is my proximity to the well? Am I drinking from the well? Is this a biblical paradigm? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That is spoken to Christians. And what that means is that that you can be a Christian and yet not be in the practice of drawing near to God, not be in the practice of going to the well. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In Hebrews, we read it this way, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So here's what I most want you to hear today. The Christian life was not meant to be lived inside the fence but far from the well. The Christian life wasn't meant to be lived inside the fence, but far from the well. And perhaps as you hear that today, silently you're thinking, that's me. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm a church member. I've confessed my need for Jesus a long time ago. But I can't remember the last time that I drank from the well. I can't remember the last time I actually sat down and and prayed and drew near to God. Now, here's the good news. Friends, you will not be rejected. It doesn't matter how long that has been. We have the the parable of the prodigal to, to serve as a guide for us when we come to our senses and we come back to the Father. You know how you're greeted. It is not with a, an angry finger, where have you been? It is an embrace, welcome home. Now, if it were easy, I think we would all live right 
next to the well every single day of our lives, but it's not easy. There are things that, that we stumble over. There's obstacles, challenges, distractions. And so what we're going to be doing during this season of Lent is just working at, at drawing near and maybe working at breaking through some of those obstacles that just keep tripping us up over and over and over again. So I'm very mindful that as, as we do this series, it, it would be foolish to just have a bunch of sermons and, and learn information, but not engage in any practice or in any training. And so part of this series is going to be what I'm calling soul training. Between Sundays, I'm going to be giving you some challenges and on things that you can do to, to help draw near. And this week, uh, what I want to encourage you to do are two things for soul training. One is to, to pray daily the Lord's Prayer. And don't rifle through it. Linger over the words, especially the first two words, Our Father. Now, maybe for you, those words, Our Father, don't stir up warm fuzzies. But I want you to, to think of, of the Father like the Father in the, in the parable of the prodigal who embraces his child who returns to him that you will not be rejected. He is the God who longs for you to come. He desires to be known by you, desires to know you. So linger over those words. And then the second thing is, is really easy. You could accomplish it today. Uh, memorize James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And linger over those words as well. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our life. Lord, uh, we each know those areas in our life uh, over which we uh, perhaps are, are ashamed. And, and like the Samaritan woman at the well, there are things that, that we're not proud of. And Lord, yet you still call us to draw near. You, stall us, you call us to turn from those things and come to you. And, and I just thank you so much that when we do, you embrace us. Or that you have chosen to, to be our God and to be in relationship with us. So Lord, we pray for this week as we uh, engage with the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that you taught us, and, and with uh, this verse from James 4, that, that your spirit would already be at work, uh, softening our hearts and, and wooing us to you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.